Um, yeah, if you weren't here this morning, we, we spoke about a rough topic, um, and it's a series. It's called Seeing the Unseen, those you who, who weren't here. Um, and I just want to give you a, like a five-second summary. Basically, the idea is just that um, there is a spiritual realm. There are angels and demons. These um, authorities and powers have been created by God. They do exist, and they have a powerful impact on our lives. Um, the key thing that we need to take out of it is that satanic influence isn't about possession. It's about deception. The goal of the, the dark realm is to deceive us. Once we believe the lie, it opens up a world of darkness for us, which eventually leads to uh, spiritual destruction. That's, that's a summary of the, the lesson this morning. And we'll be dealing more next week specifically with Satan as a being and what that means for us and, and, and you know, where demons come from and what, what they do. And, and we'll unpack that as we go ahead. So I want to invite you into this journey. It's, it's not something I've ever preached before, but I think it's something that definitely, I think, needs to be spoken about because if it's in the Bible, it needs to be spoken about. And I feel God has led, us, had led me into dealing with that. So, All right. We are in the book of Acts. We are in chapter 4. The title of tonight's um, discussion is uh, The Power of United Prayer. That's actually wrong. Oh my goodness. Do I have the right thing here? Yes, that is wrong. Would, would you mind checking there if there's another one that I sent through today? Sorry, Mom. I'm sorry about that. The, the, the title of tonight, so it should be Lesson 11. It's not there. Yeah. Oh, it's not there either. Okay. All right, we might have to go without it. Just check in the inbox there. Or by shared files, folders. We'll, we'll just deduct this from your pay, Shelley. The title of tonight's lesson is Benevolence on Another Level. We see a type of benevolence in this text that is definitely on another level. I've never seen a church like this. We are, and I think it's exciting to go through Acts because we're just reevaluating our church as well. We are part of the restoration movement where we're trying to restore the first century church. And there we go. I think that's it. Is it lesson 11 there? Yes. Okay. Oh, we need to un unblank this. What is this thing? Oh. So when you, um, if you do open your Bible... Um, you, would, you, would, you would remember that we have seen now how the Spirit has worked. And our God has now opened the door for the gospel to be proclaimed in three different places. In the streets of Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem, and then in front of the Sanhedrin. It's like uh, it's every time God raises it to another level of seriousness and, and importance where He wants this to be proclaimed. But the first time we read about the church operating is after it's been proclaimed in the streets. 
We see this church exists. 3,000 people were baptized. And chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, we see what this church looked like. What do these first people look like who, who obeyed the gospel? And it's a beautiful picture. Remember, they were devoted to the Word. They were devoted to prayer. They ate in one another's homes. And that's sort of the life that was created by the church. But directly after that, the gospel is proclaimed in the temple. Now you're starting to meddle in Satan's world. He gets to get upset now. Because now you're going up in the ranks. You're taking the gospel now to the leadership of, of the Israelites. And he starts to get upset. And for the first time, we see um, Christians being persecuted. And specifically, it's Peter and John. They are thrown into prison. And um, they come out after engaging with the Sanhedrin. We read in chapter 4 from verse 23 that um, they get back to the church and the people, um, in one voice, they pray to God and they basically thank God and ask Him for boldness for, for the servants of, of His kingdom to continually being bold to proclaim the message. Verse 31 of chapter 4 says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to pray last week. Because if we're not going to pray as a church, we're going to go nowhere. So there's three consequences of this type of united prayer, according to the text. Number one, the place where they were was shaken. Number two, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Prayer can fill you with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, they all proclaimed the Word of God boldly, the text says, right there at the end. So we see power, the power of, of these miracles, the power of Peter and John healing the guy by the gate through the name of Christ. We see this power and we see this persecution that happens after that leads the church to prayer which leads them ultimately to powerful proclamation. Um, the gospel, preaching the gospel is an ecstatic shout, an expression of God's love towards sinners. So we see the church engage in this. They, they want to tell the world about Christ. The first thing that you want to do when Jesus changes your life is to see Him do it to others. That's one of the things that I, I struggle a little bit when somebody tells me, and I'm just being honest, like when somebody says I'm a Christian, but you don't want to talk to anybody else about it. I find that hard to understand. Now, maybe it's, it's a little bit um, different for me and for many of us in this church. We've grown up in Christianity. We've grown up going to church. So meeting Jesus is not necessarily a radical life-changing experience. And maybe that's sometimes why we are not really, we, we don't know what it feels like to be lost. And so we, we, we don't really know how to talk to people who are lost. But if you've been lost, I've seen this a few times. I mean, you can't keep quiet about it because you've had a really radical life change. So when Jesus seeks and saves you in your lostness and finds you and saves you, the first response is to do, this, to do the same for others. So we see how the gospel made the early church focus outward. That's what we see at the end of verse 31. We see it right through. But remember, what did they do? They prayed. The place where was shaken. The text says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do next? They proclaimed the word of God boldly. That's what the gospel does. If it's real to you and the Spirit is in you, you want to express it outwards towards the world. That's what the Holy Spirit stands for. 
But now we are going to see something different here in the text tonight. Not only does the Holy Spirit make you focus outwards and want to proclaim the gospel message, we're going to see in the text for tonight that the Spirit makes you focus inward as well. The Spirit of God not only wants you to proclaim to people outside that Jesus saves, but when the Spirit is in you, it affects the way that you view the people inside the church. It affects the way that you treat the people inside the church. How we view each other and what we are willing to do for each other is affected by the power of the Spirit in our lives. So that's where we are tonight. Let's read from verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Do you see how the shift takes place? They are proclaimers. And suddenly Luke focuses on us again, on the life of the church. Us, the first century church. The text says that they literally had the same thoughts and same emotions. That's what the Greek says. In other words, they felt the same way about things. And they thought the same way about things. Now, who's been in the church for more than 50 years? Have you ever seen this? Everybody in the church have the same heart and the same mind. I would love to see that church because I've never seen a church like that. There's always disagreement about something. Yes. So, well, you're not like me, you're not like <laughs> All right. Yes. So this is an incredible church. They're in the same mind and they're in the same heart. They feel the same way about the same things. And often that's not the case in the church. Often you'll have one person in the church that's extremely emotional about the way the guitar is played. And another person doesn't care. Or you have one person that's extremely one-track minded about you know, what the pews needs to be about. And another person doesn't care about the pews. Or one person that says, you must only read the New American Standard Version. And another person's like, no, it's okay. Let's just rather read the Greek. And th so there's always these disagreements in thought and sometimes in heart. And the emotions come out. So this is an incredible church. Absolutely Incredible. I mean, if you look at if you look at history, I mean, so, I mean, the Restoration Movement. Um, the slogan of the Restoration Movement was "Unity in Truth." The way we're going to get all the churches together is through the Bible. Do you, did it work? We've been reading the same Bible for thousands of years, and there's more denominations on the earth today than there's ever been. That's incredible. One, one in mind, it's not going to happen. It doesn't seem to, to happen. It doesn't seem to work. If we say tonight, the way that we are all going to be in the same mind and same heart is through the Bible, through agreeing with all the passages of the Bible, you're making a big mistake. Because we're going to get to the first page and we're going to disagree about something. The, the Bible doesn't seem to be the thing that unites people. We think it should. And that's exactly the problem. Because we say, well, the Bible says this, why don't you agree with me? And then the other guy says, yeah, but the Bible also says that. 
And so the, the Bible becomes the center point of friction and disagreement and fighting. All the, most of the churches believe that the Bible is our source of truth. But why, why can't we all agree? Because we all come to the Bible with different glasses on. We are all different. That's the problem. We are all different. That's why it's very hard to become one in mind. Do you know? Listen carefully. Think about this. Question. These guys, were they united by the Bible here? Okay. They didn't have a Bible, ladies and gentlemen. They didn't have 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or the book of Romans. They didn't. There was something else uniting them. The Holy Spirit was at work. Absolutely. I believe there's two key things that we can summarize this into. If we just look at the text. Two M's. The same master. They all agreed Jesus is Lord. Fundamental. He rose from the dead. Number two. Mission. They had the same mission. If you have a bunch of people and everybody's on a different mission, they're never going to be one in heart and mind. The mission was clear. The mission was brought over by the apostles. Where did the apostles get the mission, my brother? They got it from Jesus Christ himself. They knew what the mission was. Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. And he wants the whole world to hear about this. And he wants the whole world to be saved. He, want to, he wants Talmudim all over the world, disciples of Christ. They understood that's the mission. And they all agreed about this. They were in the same heart and same mind about the mission and about the man, the master, Jesus Christ. That's what united them. It was not finicky doctrinal differences that united them. It was the person of Jesus Christ and what he came to do on the cross. When we lose focus of the master and the mission, that's when we start splitting up. And we start splitting over, should we use one cup in the Lord's Supper or many little cups? Should we have church buildings or not? Should we just meet in houses or not? Should we have a creed or not? That's all the type of stuff that splits it up into a thousand, and we lose focus of the mission. And that's one of the things that I sort of touched on this morning. What Satan does is, if he cannot throw you totally off, off track and get you to self-destruct, what he does is he occupies you with nonsense. And then you don't fulfill the mission. He despises the mission. And he wants to park the mission. He wants to park the train. So, so they were united in heart and mind. And what did this unity look like? How was it expressed? This is absolutely beautiful. It was expressed through the sharing of possessions. That's what the text says. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. When they met Christ, they didn't just become church members. They became family members. What's mine is yours. This is another level of family, wouldn't you say? And I think we need to repent tonight. 
Uh, Doug, I'm coming to fetch my Toyota Highlander later. I'm just joking. No, I'm just joking, guys. This is a, this is a challenge. Nobody claimed it's just mine. It's yours too. Let's read what it says further. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. This is extreme benevolence. And I must say, we are blessed in the country where we live. I suspect that there are no needy persons among us. I suspect. And I hope it's true. But if you find out about anybody in this church that needs, that's in need, please let, let somebody know. We need to take care of our own. They, 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 these people seem to have loved each other deeply and cared enough to give up their possessions if it was needed. The text says that there was power at work. The, 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 the apostles were powerfully at work in the proclamation of the gospel. And look at that. So, so there's power in the apostles. And then it says, and, and God's grace was powerfully at work in the people as well, the church. And so that's what the Spirit does. And that's dunamis, right? So that's, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, and it says that there was grace in the church. That the people were gracious towards each other. One of the first things that will block me from being benevolent towards you is I will judge you and say, but you don't deserve it. Isn't that one of the reasons why we wouldn't... We evaluate whether we're going to give something to somebody, whether they deserve it or not. And it's interesting that the text uses the word grace, right? Because remember what grace is, is getting what you don't deserve. They didn't make their judgment based on justice, whether they're going to help somebody or not. Their judgment was based on grace. Why on grace? Because they've just experienced it themselves. Jesus Christ forgives my sins, and I don't deserve it. Therefore, I'm going to treat people the same way. I didn't deserve the forgiveness of my sins, and you might not deserve my money, but I'm going to give it to you in any ways. Because if I receive grace, then you, you deserve it. I can give it to you as well. The closer you get to Christ, the less judgmental you become. Satan is the accuser, right? The more you find yourself pointing fingers at people, the more you realize you're operating in the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of God. The spirit of God doesn't point fingers at people. The spirit of God gives grace if it's operating in you. So the gospel should make us gracious people. That's why these guys operated like this. And if we don't, then we don't understand the gospel, which I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around sometimes. The gospel is the gospel of grace. It's not that we get eternal life for the good that we do. It's that God gives us this free gift, not based on our good deeds, but based on our trust in Him. And once we understand that, we start to treat people the same way. Verse 34 continues to say, For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. They sold houses and lands. The Ethiopic version says they sold their vineyards. 
which might have been interesting if, 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 it was, if alcohol was an issue because they would say, well, you know what? I met Christ now. I want nothing to do with alcohol. I'm going to sell my vineyard and use the money for God's things. Um, what is interesting for me when I read this is that they didn't sell their leftovers. And they didn't sell their broken stuff. I think, you've got to correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think, I suspect, the most expensive piece of real estate in the world is where? Which piece of land fight is being fought over the most on planet Earth? The Vatican? I think Jerusalem. What did you say? I mean, these guys are probably, if they, if they could sit back and look back now and say, dang, why did I sell that piece of land? They've got land in Jerusalem. Now, put this in your mind quickly as a Jew. You don't just sell your land. That land was given to you by who? By God. And it's come through the generations for how many generations? Hundreds. And you go and you sell the land? This is not just about money, ladies and gentlemen. Selling a piece of land that comes through the lineage from the days of Moses that has been in your family line for so many years. Just selling it. That's not just about money. That's also about realizing that your dependence for spiritual life is not on the old covenant anymore, or the ways of Judaism anymore, or your, your bloodline through the Judaic roots, but that your salvation is now solely in Jesus Christ. The land now means nothing. you got Christ. Jesus Christ and Him resurrected from the dead literally changed the Jews' life totally and utterly. He gave up his heritage. He gave up his past. He gave up his family land. That's, that is what Jesus Christ will do to you. When you meet him face to face, you will give up everything. So I think this is, this is crazy. The closest that I have been to people doing this type of thing in my life was when they died. They die and they leave a house behind for a church. That's the closest I've seen. When I don't need it anymore, then the church can have it. Okay, thank you. That's great. But this is another level. The question tonight is, what made them so benevolent? What is it that switched? I would like to propose to you that it's all about the resurrection. Why does a house... Or property matter if you realize that the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world? Why hold on to a piece of land when you come to grips that Jesus is, this kingdom, his kingdom is not of this world? It's actually somewhere else. Okay, I'm going to sell my assets in this kingdom because I belong to another. What would Jesus do? With my property? That's a good question to ask yourself. What would Jesus do with my property? Do you think you will care about your possessions if you were in these people's shoes? 
They see the apostles perform these miracles. Matter doesn't stop them. Nothing stops them. Would you place security in your possessions? No, you wouldn't. Why would you hold on to possessions when you, when you know people need what you have? Jesus gave up his life for the person next to you, but you don't want to give up your TV for him. How can you be a follower of Christ? The text says they put it at the apostles' feet, which sort of tells me it's a sign of trust and respect. We know you will do the correct thing and, and distribute it to those in need. We trust you with our whole life savings. Then verse 36 and 37 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I feel ashamed about this, but I, I never knew this. I didn't know that Barnabas was actually a nickname. I thought it's his legit name. And it's not. I don't know how many of you knew that, but his name's actually Joseph. Um, I think Luke is incredible. I think Luke is an incredible writer. I think he's intelligent um, because he shows the benevolence of this church, how they would generally give up stuff for one another and share their possessions. And then he gives one example. He zooms in on Barnabas, one individual. And then it's like, it's, it's like he's saying, this is what the church did. Here's one example. And I, I'm, I'm saying this example to lead you into the next one, which is Ananias and Sapphira, which, who we'll talk about next week. It's sort of he's taking us on this journey, and I think he's just a brilliant writer. Um, so so this, this struck me that the apostles, they sort of came together and they looked at Barnabas, well, Joseph, and they said, Goodness gracious, we need to give this guy another name. What's it going to be? Because his behavior so sh was shining so brightly that they said, we must give this guy another name. Son of consolation or son of encouragement. The God-breathed apostles who walked with Jesus looked at Barnabas, saw his behavior, and decided to identify him by this powerful spiritual attribute. You want to be in this guy's life. You, you want him around you. You'll never feel down. And that's from the apostles. So, to put this together, let me make some observations. Firstly, I've said this a few times. Say it again. Jesus upgrades people. When these um, Christians who were Jews, probably most of them before, when they became Christians, they were probably already good people. They were probably already good. I mean, if you go look at Judaism, and you look at the Jewish people, how they were required to be benevolent, they were benevolent. They were good towards each other. But when they met Christ, they became better. They didn't sell their fields before they met Christ. They sold their fields after they met Christ. Needy people were in Jerusalem before Christ already, but they didn't sell their fields. They would have helped them, but they weren't this benevolent. That's what Jesus does. You're a good person when you meet Him. You are better after you've walked the distance with Him. That's what Jesus does. This is what He does. He always upgrades you 
makes you better than you are. And so if you sit here tonight and you are dissatisfied with yourself, it's just one step closer to come to Christ more. James says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So it's that, that one step closer to him that you get that makes you a better person than what you are. Secondly, and I think we all agree about this, shame on us if people in our church have unmet needs. And we need to be aware of one another's needs. And if push comes to shove, that we need to be willing to set aside our own possessions and our own personal comfort to meet the needs of those in our church community. And I think that what we don't, what, I don't think that there is poverty in our church when it comes to finances. I don't think there's anybody that goes hungry at night, is what I'm trying to say. But I do think that there are some people in our church that's hungry for companionship and friendship. And I, I don't think this, this needs to be just about money. I think we can apply this into all areas of what the people around us need. And I think that we need to become aware that there are some people that are lonely. And try to reach out to those people. I think it's the saddest thing if there's a person, and I know it goes both ways, if there's a person in God's church that feels like nobody loves them, nobody notices them, and nobody cares. We have that responsibility too. The beautiful thing is, um, as I said this morning as well, when you are influenced by the spiritual forces of darkness, you become inward focused. It becomes about you. The addict, he thinks about his flesh. He cries about his life. He cries about himself. When you meet Christ and the Spirit indwells you, what starts to happen? Everything in you points you towards others. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer about me. Now it's about others. That's what we see in the first century church. I want to go out and I want to tell the world about Christ and I want to help those in the church. That should be the mentality of all of us. So we've got to be careful that church becomes this thing and our Christian life becomes this thing about, about what I get. It should be about what I give. And then thirdly, um, where you put your money is where your heart is. This is just a fact. Matthew 6 verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When these Christians met Jesus, realized about His kingdom of heaven, it was nothing for them to sell their lands. Because their heart was no longer in the land. Their heart was no longer in Judaism. Their hearts were now in heaven, where their Lord was, Jesus Christ. So you can do an exercise this, this evening. Where's all your money at? Think about it. Where is it? How do you feel about that? Where your money is will tell you where your heart is at. And lastly, what nickname do you think the apostles would give you? I wanted to take some time this afternoon to give a nickname to each one of you from my perspective. Encouraging nicknames. Because you're all cool. 
I've already got one for Evan, Evan Almighty, because there's just a movie about him. It's a name of a movie. But all, all of you are unique. And I believe the Spirit of God sees in you what is unique. A unique spiritual contribution that you make to the body. And I want to challenge you to go think about that. What, what's the strong point that stands out about you in your spiritual life? Obviously, it's better if we, if we could, I wouldn't ever do that, but if we could go around and one by one, we each receive a nickname from one another. Because people from outside of yourself always see you better than you sometimes see yourself. I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But you guys are all special. All of you are special. May God bless you richly. Let's close off with a prayer. Father in heaven, this is such an incredible church. It's such a pure church that we see your spirit worked in. They were so close to the actual resurrection they were, they were right there seeing the work of the Spirit in the lives of the apostles. The gospel message was so pure and unadulterated by 2,000 years of church history and human influence. I wish that we had a way to just cut off all of the traditions that we have seen and all the ways of thinking that's human. I wish we could just have a clear, objective view of the gospel and the Christian life as these early Christians did. I pray to Father that you will bless us with that insight as a church here in Sweet Home. I pray to Father that you will give us this type of one and heart and mind mentality that will be on the same mission and will submit to the same master and will be capable of removing and setting aside the man-made traditions that separate us. Dear Father, because then we can do some powerful things for your kingdom. And I, I pray, dear Father, that you will instill within us a love and a type of grace to the extent, for one another to the extent where we will be willing to sell our possessions for each other. I pray, dear Father, that you'll take care of those in this church who are deeply in need. And that you'll use us to fulfill that need. I pray to Father that you will never allow anybody in this church to be in need and we don't know about it. And that you'll provide for those people, I pray to Father, through us. Please keep us safe this week with whatever lies ahead for each one of us and bring us back safely, please, next week, dear Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.